Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is Hannah Nicklin. Hannah is a, an, an award-winning game designer. Um, she's also got a background in, in theatre and performance and academia. Uh, she gives loads of brilliant talks. She writes loads of cool zines. She designs loads of cool games. Uh, very, very interesting, very insightful, really engaging chat. You know, sometimes you have, uh, you, you just, you have certain conversations with people and they're almost combative, but they're not... In no, there's no sort of bad feeling behind it. At least I didn't feel there was any bad feeling behind it. It was just a really constructive uh, back and forth and lots of refuting premises of questions. And I really, honestly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think uh, I think everybody listening will really dig it too. She's a, she's a brilliant interviewee. Uh, yeah, really thoroughly enjoyed it. So that's that's really good. And and it like we talk a lot about kind of um theater and performance in its relationship with with games if you are interested in that sort of stuff um i would encourage you to go back oh man i can't even tell when it was but it was one of the autosave episodes i did an autosave episode all about um the relationship between video games and performance and i spoke to a bunch of actors and a bunch of game designers and uh just about their relationship with games and there's some really brilliant little interviews there with uh various kind of voiceover actors and, and people like like William Pugh, um, who made the was one of the designers of the Stanley Parable, all about kind of games as performance, basically, and performance as 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 gaming, uh, which is something that that Hannah is uh, hugely interested in and has tons of brilliant insights into. Um, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail dot com, or it's at checkpoint show on Twitter, or it's checkpoints podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, if you if you like the show, if you enjoy the show, I can't stress enough how useful things like sharing the show on social media or telling a real human friend or uh, rating and reviewing it on iTunes uh, is to kind of helping grow the audience of the the show. It's been going up, you know, as as the weeks go by, which is you know really makes me feel good. It makes you feel like happy that I feel like I'm doing something right and. I'm getting sort of good guests on the show. So thanks everyone for listening and subscribing. And uh, if you like the show, please do what you can to help kind of spread the word and, and uh, reach as many people as I possibly can. If you really like the show, there is a Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the money and the inclination, all donations, very gratefully received and uh, go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. And um, there are rewards on that as well. I mean, they're not, necessarily brilliant rewards depending on how you feel about certain types of reward but one of them is um if you pledge i think it's ten dollars a month i'll do a show with you um and luckily everyone that has pledged that amount that i'm gonna start doing quite soon because i was quite lax with it are really good and really interesting so i'm very excited about bringing some of those out at some point um i think that's pretty much everything um, you should play Flint Hook. I love Flint Hook. Uh, that's that's my my best game of the week. I've been playing it so much. Um, I'm sure you know 
I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? There's too many games. So, like, I'm sure I'm saying play Flint Hook. It's amazing. There's probably a billion games that are that are really good that you should play. But you definitely should play Flint Hook. And I'm not just saying that because uh, Dom, the designer, is going to be on the show soon. Um, but Dom is coming on the show because I really like Flint Hook and I reached out to, to speak to him. Um, yeah, so that's that's coming up. That's a tease. I don't really don't usually do those sort of things, but there you go. Um, okay. Well, thanks anyway for downloading. I'll be back next week with a new show and a new guest. As always, have a brilliant week. Let's get on with the show. For the sake of uh, an edit, let's do a formal introduction. So, uh, Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So, I'm Hannah Nicklin. Um, I I guess I come to video games from a theatre and performance background in that I studied um, uh, drama for a degree, but I, I'd always been sort of playing kind of certain kinds of video games like I was like I had a GameCube in my dorm kind of uh, person um, and then I did a, a playwriting masters and then after my masters I worked for a, a feminist theatre company in Wolverhampton uh, for a while and during that time I discovered the world of like pervasive games so I was also playwriting with like the Royal Court and Theatre 503 and people but um, I discovered through a uh, a workshop called Playwriting for the iPod Generation, uh, Soundwalks, which are like kind of that you download an MP3 to your your phone or your MP3 player, and you go to a certain place at a certain yes, time yes, of day, yes. and you you walk through kind of a story that's wrapped around you in the place that you're walking through. So it's kind of like walking through a film or a piece of theatre where you're cast as part of it. Uh, and through that, I discovered the world of pervasive games and super interested in uh, game design through that kind of stuff. I was designing pervasive games, was super aware of video games and knew a few people who worked in that area because pervasive games is that really interesting crossover between performance, performative stuff, interaction in real life and then kind of game, video game games. Um, and then just sort of have slowly worked more and more in video games, particularly interested in writing and narrative design um, and also writing about games because I also have this PhD in games influenced theatre and theatre influenced games. And I'm super interested in uh, games and how they uh, allow us a different way to reflect on our lives and our culture. Um, so that particular perspective means that I kind of am interested in writing about um, games from a, I guess, a sociopolitical point of view, like in the same way as you would talk about how a, a play reflects its time or a performance reflects its makers and the state of our world. I'm kind of interested in games as sociopolitical artefacts and um, the people who make them as well. That's that's a hell of an introduction you've just given yourself there, Hannah. And that's absolutely fine. Like because it's like there's so much packed within that, but none of it that there is no breezy catch-all way of explaining that's, that's that without the thing. explaining the whole no thing. There is no easy way to describe my way. Like I didn't 
code in my bedroom and then do a degree and then do a game jam and then I was famous because of the game of the game jam and that's like a oh now you're just mugging off every guest I'm really not slagging anyone off it's just it's just like an easy narrative it's like it's a narrative that we know kind of about how people get into games and and but a lot of the people I know come from film or come from fine art or illustration or theatre like I know a lot of people who come from performance arts and stuff so absolutely I think it's you know it's, it's another art form and there are lots of different ways into it but we don't have the narrative in the popular culture around video games so much so it helps you go oh. interestingly actually i just like a day or two ago i interviewed very excitingly i interviewed uh, ken levine oh. um, who's like you know a very big name in, in video game development and that was exactly his journey it was it was all through theater mm. that was he was a, a failed uh failed screenwriter and then had like a bit of a second win with theatre and then somehow that led him back into games. Yeah, I mean... I always find fascinating. The thing I'm really fond of saying when I teach students is that... Uh, it's one of these, like, you know, you just find yourself making catchphrases for yourself, is that, like, uh, theatre is a game so old we forgot it's a game. Like, they are all playful arts and I think particularly uh, performance is... Um, an interesting uh, perspective on games which so often take their cues from film which may not always be the best way to express a thing in a, in a, a medium that's different I, I said this to you in an email but like I, I wish uh, I had known about your background a couple of months ago because I did a whole I did a whole episode about this because like I, I've only weirdly like I've always been into games like forever but I've only come to theater maybe in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and noticing the kind of convergence there and the potential there is just it, it's like maybe we did it the opposite way around like you came into games through theater and I've not come into theater through games but I've come into theater and with this whole history of games yeah and also and what, it's really like what, there's so much potential there's like. so much interesting stuff there a lot of also what people imagine when they think of theater is um, a bunch of people pretending you're not there and um, pretending to be some other people for some time. But the bit of theatre I come from, theatre and performance, uh, live art, um, devising theatre, a-, a lot of it is uh, talking to an audience made in a different way. It's not written by a playwright. It's like the way that a band makes music. It's everyone getting in a room and trying out different bits and iteratively Absolutely. working out what the thing they have to say is. Or um, like it's sometimes super abstract or, you know, like I have stood in a cold church in Bristol and watched someone cover their naked husband who was hugging a dead pig in gold leaf and when you say it out loud it's ridiculous but if you watch it as a 12-hour durational performance it turns into a complex and super beautiful thing in the same way as something like uh, desert golfing changes its meaning every time you get to the next hole or the next 50 or the next I don't think anyone next slight else is ever going to make that comparison between two so disparate things but I, I totally, I totally understand what you mean. Like it is, like I've noticed that with um, with a lot of like actors that I speak to like, through in theatre that that are really, really into games, and it's it's such a a cliche to say that they love uh, role playing games, but they really do. And I just it, that's to me that almost feels like a like a busman's holiday that people would take it that seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah, you you don't want you also don't want to play a role playing game with theatre people. You just really don't. It's just like the longest, most like hammy experience of your life. But it could as well. be, it could be exciting. <laughs> so okay, Hannah, let's let's talk cool. um, about video games. So if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? 
You know, I, I, I did try to think of this and um, I just, there's just like a collection of games from a certain era that I remember and they all would have been PC games because we didn't have a console, um, uh, I, I think, at all. I remember quite vividly actually playing on my, um, my cousin's SNES, um, but only, I think the only game that they had was the like a game with columns and some kind of it might have been super hang on I don't know if that was what it was it was definitely a bike game um and then a, a football game I didn't particularly care about um and I I remember playing columns a super ton at my cousin's house and getting into trouble because we were supposed to be doing Christmas <laughs> or something um but in terms of like games that actually I feel vaguely attached to and I really couldn't uh, give you a a a particular one that was definitely the first one that I ever played, but uh, really vividly, um, like, uh, there was this game called Sleepwalker, which... Oh, the comic most... relief game, yeah? Yes, I'm amazed that you have heard of that, because, like, I'm fairly certain that it was just a really, really niche, weird English thing. Oh, I know, it absolutely English, was, so... yeah. I'm Welsh, I'm yeah. not English, but that's, that's fine. Well, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have no accent. accent, it's fine, you can't... Like I have this weird thing where I, I've never I've lived in Scotland for ten years. I've still got no accent whatsoever. I don't know why. I it was is. placing you somewhere around Somerset. Maybe that's what Scottish plus Welsh. Like, well, I'm from Newport, Somerset. which is like relatively southwest, pretty much. Okay. And I went. Well, to I genuinely apologise because no, I'm that's not absolutely a fine. Unionist, so I don't want to come across <laughs> as militant or anything. It's fine. <laughs> you should feel free to be militantly Welsh if you wish to. Um, well, anyway, yeah, Sleepwalker. So Sleepwalker is. A comic relief game, uh, which I just remember playing for hours at the, around the same time as I was probably playing a bunch of like Prin- Prince of Persia, but like Sleepwalker was way more engaging. Yeah. Because um, you you know you play as this like dog who has to guide their sleepwalk. It's a it's a platformer, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You, it's quite a clever idea, you. like in retrospect. It's a, it's a, it's got like a kind of funny opening. Like I'm, I'm just astonished that Comic Relief gave some people some money to make a video game. That doesn't seem like it would like raise a great deal of money. Yeah. I, I mean, they must have just reskinned something. Otherwise, it would have. It, I can't imagine it being a, a sensible thing to do. Um, but um, yeah, you play as a, a faithful dog whose young boy, uh, who is your sort of the person you're looking after as a kind of. Uh, a dog of the family, and um, your your young boy charge is a sleepwalker, and every night he goes sleepwalking through the the sort of roofs of this, I guess, like New Yorkish city. I don't know why it was so New Yorkish. I weirdly always remember it being game. in the woods. In the woods. Yeah, you're like Maybe kicking him around branches level, and stuff. Which, yeah, so I super remember like so there was like uh, loads. There was of probably only like three levels and... to be honest. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And uh, there were like trampolines just for no good reason yes, between yes, yes. like um, houses, and and the the boy would bounce, and there would be like obstacles you had to turn him around from. It was uh, and he would just keep on walking no matter what, and you could sort of hold him. And you could push him, and you could push him off things onto jumpy things and onto other things. Anyway, I, I yeah, I just remember enjoying that a lot. And then the only other two things that I super engaged with is um, Command and Conquer Red Alert, 
which I just have a really vivid memory of one particular person that you used to order around going, yes, comrade, every time that she yeah, took yeah. an order. And she was this really strong, like, voice. I just remember really relating to this incredibly strong female acting <laughs> that was coming from one of the characters. I was like, yeah, I like playing with this one. <laughs> and then finally, um, The Lion King, which I only had the demo of. Um, this is still, this is PC game. Okay. And, and was it just like a part um, of the platforming one? Um, yeah, exactly. It was just the first level of the Lion King uh, game that came around the same time as the movie. And I was young enough to sort of be super into the movie. And I just remember playing this first level because my dad would never have bought it. Um, because I think everything that we had was either stuff that he was into um, or that we got for free for some reason. Um, so he wouldn't have bought the Lion King because he was no interest, no interest yeah. in playing it himself. Um and so I just played this first level over and over and over again. And I remember the loading screen, which is the, like Simba getting up and doing a yawn and, or maybe it was a roar. I'm not sure. Anyway, I just over and over again and just getting pleasure out of that, which I find really peculiar. But I did grow up in Lincolnshire in the early 90s. So I guess, you know, maybe. find your, find your cake somewhere where you can find it. Um, yeah. And all of that stuff is quite distant until you get to the Discworld uh, PC games, which I begin to remember and playing for hours and hours. So you mentioned like when, when we were talking on email beforehand, you'd mentioned like you had no real interest in games when you were younger. And I'm just curious, like, did you have, were there people around you that were interested in games or was it just something you didn't engage with? Like, did you have brothers and sisters or friends or people that you knew, even I your mean, parents? Like, I, I say I wasn't interested in games when I was younger. I mean... I was super into computers and I played games. I just don't, I don't like the nostalgia that sometimes seems necessary for you to participate in games culture. And I kind of, it makes me feel super alienated, particularly because there was definitely a period when games went super console-y, it feels like, in my history. Um, the N64 and PlayStation 1 era, um, where... Um, that was um, the first time we had a console in the house. It belonged to my brother. It did not belong to me. I was only really ever playing it when it was multiplayer games and my brother wanted someone else to play with him and his friends. Okay. And it's not like he would have ever said, no, you can't. Um, but I was yeah, I was an older sister. I was a bit of a pain. So probably often just wanted that to be his thing yeah. <laughs> as well. Um, and... And, but it it did it did feel like that was the boy's thing, not the thing that I was expected or should do. Um, and so I just uh, so like my experience of that era of gaming is limited to like Goldfinger multiplayer, to Tony Hawk, um, to I guess like weird little games like Beetle Car Racing, which was um, basically I don't know. Uh, mario kart but with beetle cars okay <laughs> um, but like my all of my experiences are we just need a fourth player hannah right uh, kind of <laughs> games and uh, and so I, I never really developed a console controller literacy which even now super affects my experience of games there i don't really have the time to spend enough hours to get super good at actually using a controller um so games that require super fast reactions like basically every fps and stuff i just can't be bothered to learn to enjoy like my limited time and do a lot of stuff so. i think that's such a crazy underestimated part of video game culture that people just 
for anyone who's grown up playing games, it, it seems like oh, whatever. But like actually figuring out a controller when you've not used a controller is insane. Like some of the, if if you come to something like Overwatch and you don't know how a controller works, like you've got no chance of ever getting any enjoyment out of that game. Yeah, unless you dedicate like months. It's a different language, which I like. Can I I can get buy in, but it's not like I'm fluent in it. And um, there are so many games which don't punish my lack of fluency in that. I don't really feel the need to. I don't know, spend my time learning how to play Overwatch. And and so so I'm sort of super okay with that, but I feel like the nostalgia in games, because there's so much of an era of it which is rooted in the console and everything that did, and that was an era that really alienated me, and that's super related to not just people, but the way it was marketed, and oh, the assumptions in that marketing, and the games that were made, and the assumptions about who was playing games. All of that stuff um, like means that I have played a certain kind of game and there are gaps in my um, history of games that make me super uncomfortable with saying that I'm in any way a gamer and uh, that make me a bit uncomfortable about questions about history of games. Not to say that it's not important, just that it can feel like I'm going to prove that thing where everyone expects women to be not good or... I think it's like, I think it was especially bad in the UK, the the sort of gendered marketing like growing up i i didn't know any girls that that played games and it wasn't but I, maybe because of the way like i've spoken to this uh, about this uh, previous guest on the show like i don't know if it's because of because i read loads of magazines and stuff and like everyone in the magazine was a guy everyone in all the adverts was a guy it was always just guys and i just assumed that girls just didn't like games and i should therefore keep it a bit of a secret because that makes me really nerdy and uncool uh, and and I I don't you don't see that same or I you know anecdotally I don't see that same thing when I speak to people from other countries like I think the UK is sp- specifically had was was really bad at that especially in the eighties like, and the nineties it's getting better yeah. now obviously but even still nor do I necessarily think that it's exclusive to games like there are plenty of other art forms oh where, absolutely yeah like uh, another scene that I'm a part of is like the punk scene and uh like if you can't name a particular band's brother's dog's favorite meal then you might be considered to not know enough about punk and to participate in the conversation in the same way in games I'm constantly having to like prove that I'm worth being in the conversation at all I do the same punk, like, the the only reason that sometimes certain bands would ever talk to me or, um, like, anyone in a, a gig would talk to me is because they realised that I wrote for a certain zine or that I reviewed for a certain uh, zine and then they would suddenly, like, have something to say to me because I yeah, had yeah. my credentials. But, like, <laughs> another guy standing next to them wouldn't need their credentials and wouldn't be assumed to be just the partner of someone who didn't want to be there. That's that's insane. Although weirdly, though, the the one the one part of that which you've already kind of hinted at, where um, w- was PC gaming. PC gaming was never, as far as I can remember, it was never marketed in in that way at all. It was much more open and inclusive. And because you didn't have the the controller as well, like it's it's much more everyone just come and try this out so that that's what yeah but you did get those amazing uh overlays for your keyboards though did you ever have any of those no like Like, what do you mean like i think maybe it was like flight games in particular which i never really cared for but you'd get those like uh amazing like plasticky things that you would lay over your keyboard and it would basically give you a whole new control system yeah yeah yeah. you see that with like starcraft and stuff like custom People are like actually engraving keys and stuff for, for certain 
for like you know pro players of starcraft yeah. in, in korea but i mean i take your point and yeah there was you know but i, I just suddenly remembered those amazing like ridiculous keyboard overlays so Discworld, then you you said that was a big thing for you yeah i mean my whole family uh just read the Discworld novel so so much and um i think even i think when everyone else is reading like point horror and babysitter club books um I was reading the Discworld and Lord of the Rings just because I had nerdy parents, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was what, was what was in our house. And my mum, uh, well, actually, I used to, I did try a few babysitter books, babysitter club books. Yeah, uh, you, can't, got, you can't disappoint horror too, too hard. I, I really enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, what, what else was there? There was just Point Point, wasn't there? <laughs> point yeah, yeah, yeah. Rom- I never read any Point Romance because there's, uh, but any, like I, but my mum said that I got through those books so like quickly that she just said they were a bad investment. <laughs> <laughs> because I was a really avid reader, so she used to give me adult books because it would take me longer to get through them. Um, and because because that was such a um, uh, me and my brother were so thick with that world of the disc world, um, like th- that game was such an easy sell for us and, and my dad as well. And they were ridiculously hard, um, but it was also I, th- I think that they were. It's been years since I've played them. Um, but I, I just thought they were done so cleverly. Like it wasn't like um, it was so faithful, but it wasn't a replication of yeah. the Discworld. Um, and the animation and the art style, and particularly the voices. Um, I think it, it was one of the. Um, it was Eric Idol. Was that, is that his name? Really yeah, yeah, names. one of the Monty Python guys. Yeah, it was one of the Monty Python, and, and it's just like, of course, like that's not like. Because there were already all the, the audio books and they could have got Tony Robinson to do the voices and he would have been great at it. But I think that there was something really interesting in not just replicating the previous existing versions of the Discworld, but taking it and, and finding um, someone different, but who just brought a completely different, accurate spin to it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, did did, did he write the games? Did he have a hand in the games? I never you know played what? them. I, I, don't even, I don't even know. And, and they were ridiculous. They, they, the, the, you could... I don't think that it's possible for any human to get through them without the like monthly magazines that would give you all the hints as to what you should do with this particular puzzle. Like catch the dragon's breath with a mirror and then travel back through time via the librarian in order to go and get a particular mouse's tail in order to then go back to the shades where you can sell it but you have to go back through time again to the future in order to X, Y, Z. And it was, it was, it, it, it was you know... In the uh, traditions of um, point-and-click puzzle games, <laughs> they, it was it was just it was so ridiculous as to be I don't know. But we had loads of fun. I think my family, my mum, uh, maybe. It's not nice to so think much, of that as a family game. Like everyone, yeah, it was me trying and my to figure out things. My together. dad going, "What do we do here? <laughs> and when is the next? I don't even remember what the magazine was, but when is the next magazine coming out that'll tell us the solution to this ridiculous puzzle?" Um, that yeah, that's a quite vivid memory. The computer which sat in the dining room, and we'd only ever really go in the dining room to use this PC. Um, uh, yeah, I have particular memories of 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 sitting around that that PC in the dining room. But but it didn't kind of it didn't stick in that way. Like it, you mentioned, you you kind of had a GameCube in university, so you weren't taking anything with you. You weren't buying consoles or anything like that. Um, I didn't. Uh... I mean, hmm, I guess I was always kind of interested in, 
I don't know. I think I, I, my, I got super into punk music when I was 15. So maybe when I was 12 or 13 or 14, I stopped playing so many games on the PC. When I was 15, 14 or 15, me and a group of friends would spend hours making not video games and not movies. There was this thing called Windows Movie Maker. No, Movie yeah. Maker? I don't, that was like the built-in the... kind of simple That's like, the movie editor, basically. name then. There was a different thing. And it was basically like... It was a both... It's like a... It's kind of like The Sims crossed with something else. And, and you could... It was kind of like a puppet theatre, but digital. I don't even know what the programme was called, but it was really weird. I'm going to have to look this up. You had all these weird characters, and you could tell them to go places and to say things and to do things, and you could choose lots of different settings. And I had it on my uh, PC in my room, um, and me and my friends, like five or six of us, would just spend hours and hours making these kind of animated... But there was like 3D-ish films in this thing so uh, i don't really know yeah it was it, it, was, it was quite no i don't i i think i would i have i've only just remembered this and it was it was a ridiculous thing um i think it did have the words movie maker in it i don't know who produced it or what it was but it wasn't the that, it... the movies game the it was that a peter molyneux game no, I, I think I would have remembered if it was something like notable or famous. It it was really odd, and I tell you what, I'll do the research, and you can like do a little uh, like cutting in if I actually found out what it was, and go, Hannah was talking about this thing. Um, <laughs> but it, so I think for like two years, me and my friends spent time making stories in this thing. Um, and did and they have like little voices and stuff? I think you could record things. Yeah, you this could record amazing. things. You could record audio and put it in, and it would it would give that dialogue to the characters, and you could make sound effects and stuff. Hello, um, I don't mean to to butt in in the middle, but I never did manage to find this game while we were chatting, so I'm just butting in to say it was 3D Movie Maker, um, and it does it, it looks and sounds as amazing as, as Hannah describes it. It looks it looks brilliant. Um, anyway, yeah, just in case people are getting annoyed that we don't discover it during the show. It's 3D Movie Maker. Let's continue. So it's like um, a virtual theatre company, basically. You can make little 3D plays. <laughs> what, what, was was... Your, what was your story about that you all spent years I mean, making? Oh, well, we, we, did, we made loads. Whatever we wanted to make, really. There were pirates and there were action movies and there were comedies and sitcoms. And we used to do loads of different stuff. We'd spend time writing the scripts and then like making it happen and recording all the noises and stuff. Um, and that was around the time um, the first Sims games came out, and I was I was pretty into the Sims actually. My mum credits my straight A stars um, to the Sims. Um, she says that I learned to organise my time, and uh, like I basically organised my revision in the same way that I organised my uh, my Sims characters. Um, so I guess I was kind of doing things on PCs and around PC games, but I would never have thought to myself as a and I, I never bought games like they were just yeah. things that came with the computer or I think maybe The Sims belonged to my mum and that's why I was playing it. Um, and I watched someone play pretty much all of Final Fantasy uh, 10, I think, when, when I was 17. I was uh, dating a, a skateboarder punk dropout um, and we used to hang out and 
uh, he'd smoke weed and I'd breathe in the fumes and watch him play Final Fantasy X. Um, and I just sort of enjoyed that story. So when I moved to university, um, I, 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 I kind of bummed around the south of France for a while, uh, working in kitchens and stuff and just okay. earning a bit of money. And with that money, I bought like, um, cause all of my music had been like illegal downloads at that point, And I bought a hundred CDs, <laughs> micro CDs were a thing. Just arbitrarily a hundred CDs. I just, I just decided I needed a hundred. I wanted to learn about music and I was into like weird underground punky things, but I decided I hadn't, which I found online, but I had no knowledge of what came before. So I went through like enemy and, uh, like all these, um, indie music magazines, top 100s. And I selected ones that sounded like I wanted, and that I would enjoy. <laughs> I just bought 100 CDs, which are going to be my like education to music. And at the same time, I had a bit of money left over, so I bought a GameCube um, and uh, spent a lot of time playing like JRPGs, I think. Not that I particularly recall what any of them were. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to like. I'm going to go to South France and find myself, and you've come home with 100 CDs and a GameCube, which is yeah. brilliant. I lived I'm in a not, tent I'm at the not, time, I so I couldn't that, play I the GameCube. <laughs> um, I just lived in a tent or a hammock. Um, and <laughs> that makes it even better. <laughs> yeah, I just carried a GameCube around for a while. It was really cheap. It had a handle. It did have a handle. It's the only console it did, that has it a handle. It did legitimately so. have a handle. And, and I also really, genuinely, out of all the controllers I've ever held, the GameCube controller I really liked. And my brother bought me, was it called a Wavebird or something? Mm-hmm. Um it was the first ever wireless controller. Yeah, exactly. And my brother got me the because I didn't have a wireless one when I bought it, but for my first university birthday, my brother got me a Wavebird, and I think I still got that controller just because I don't like throwing away gifts. Oh, they're they're really good, the Wavebirds, because they're a little yeah. bit bigger as well. They they oh, I remember how how good they felt. Nintendo are just really good at that stuff. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um. So. Did you have like? Did you have an idea of what you kind of wanted to do? Like, what did you go to university to do? Did you have like aspirations? Because you're clearly very smart. You get all these good grades. What, what are you into? Uh, I think. Well, at one point, I decided I wanted to be uh, an actor because uh, I grew up, um, I guess, in the middle of nowhere, and um, I guess my. My generation, my family is the one that moved over from working class to middle class. So okay. when we grew up, we were pretty, um, we, we didn't have much money or anything. Um, and I just went to a regular secondary school. And so I think I was interested in telling stories and theatre was one way to do that. And I think I hadn't, it didn't occur to me until I got to university that you could be involved with theatre and do things other than like act like you see the actors and obviously absolutely people have written scripts but they're all dead white guys right so you would never be one of those people but as soon as i got to university um i had an incredible lecturer called carolyn scott jeffs um and uh she just she ran a playwriting module which i I tried and and just really 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 enjoyed. So I went quickly from wanting to be an actor to um, wanting to be a playwright, and then that's what I spent time training in and began being. And I guess my life is just a series of discovering the the things that suit the stories that I want to tell better and better, yeah. and the ways in which I want to tell them. So what? Um, 
like what changed i guess did you did you just stick in university like right up until the phd or did you uh, no, go away and come I, back or? i went from undergrad university to uh, um, research masters at university of birmingham um university of birmingham uh again i was working a job at the same time as doing a research masters so didn't have time for anything then and then i um Again, and then yeah, and then I was working for this theatre company, um, and I think I probably didn't have a console um, that I was playing regularly until my uh, PhD years, where I actually had a scholarship. Like I had a scholarship for my undergrad degree, um, but I had like a what you call a studentship for my PhD. Um, okay. Which means that you get paid like super like a hundred like a thousand one hundred pounds a month is what I got paid, which is not a great deal, but it was enough to live off if you live super frugally. Um yeah. and um I saved up and I bought a PS two is what we were on at that time. Yeah. So PS2. what prompted that then? Like you just always had this kind of like casual interest in games. Because that I mean like for someone who who may not have a huge interest in games, it's a, it's a big outlay to get like a new console. Like there must yeah, have been something that I mean, pulled you towards that. It wasn't it wasn't new because it was Slimline. I bought it when it was the okay. Slimline, um, and I guess I. Do I mean to what was because um, I played uh, like I played Portal and um, uh, what was that game called where it was super black and white and it's a platformer and the boy dies Limbo. horribly. Limbo. So it's, yeah, it's that would that have been era. like a PS3, I guess. Is that a PS3 then? Yeah, I had I a slimline so. PS2 on which I played Final Fantasy, I think. And then ah, I got okay, a PS3, okay. um, which I saved up for a while. I'm getting my history mixed up. But anyway, who cares about history? Um, yeah, I bought that in my PhD uh, era just, I, I guess, because... Yeah, I, video games have I kind of been a part of my sort of yeah casual interest so a game that i can finish in one sitting or two or three is exactly the kind of game that has fit into my life because i've so ruthlessly pursued learning and uh achievement and like um uh not had a great deal of money so i've been having to work like proper jobs and stuff like my leisure time which your average middle-class white guy has a lot more of than even your average middle-class white woman who um to pass in the world normally has to do a lot more like uh grooming and (laughs) like uh are expected to uh, do different kinds of activities and stuff um so yeah i but yeah what portal was like perfect for me because I played, I finished it all in one sitting. The puzzles were super like gripping, but also like took me like at most two goes to work it out. And um, like the story was engaging, which is unusual. And um, yeah, I think. And it's really funny. Yeah. Which is so super rare in video games. Yeah, it's it was it was witty and complex in a way that um, I you know is. It is it enough to keep me interested whereas i yeah you have to do a lot to win me over yeah I, i'm not a, i'm not a very I'm, 
I'm, yeah, I'm very judgy about most things, to be honest, whether, <laughs> <laughs> whether they be theatre, books or comics or uh, music. Like, I'm, I'm like, I know what I like. <laughs> that's fine. That's good. Um, so wh- when did you start to kind of uh, coalesce the interest then? Because, you know, your PhD was all about kind of games in performance and performance in games. So, so when did the, these kind of ideas start to, to converge? Yeah, so what I pitched at the beginning of the PhD, because obviously the thing you write bears no resemblance to the actual pitch for which yeah. you get funding, um, was about um, digital technology and theatre and performance. Um, and it became about games because I realised that was a much more interesting question to ask around the same themes. Um, and it would involve technology, but often people fo- focus on the technology and not the form and the way that the form changes and the way that play and um, interaction in performance has changed throughout the 20th century. And the questions that it's answering and asking are the same things that are being asked by games sort of now. Um, and so I was super interested in that. So it kind of became about that. And, and again, like I think I said earlier, it it came through pervasive games and pervasive gaming and discovering um, the kind of game design that I could do. Like I hadn't been learning about code. I was sort of, you know, a MySpace generation kid who could use HTML to a basic level, but I don't think I would have ever found the time working so many part-time jobs since I was 15 um, and spend the rest of time, less time studying. I've never found time to, uh, be able to afford to learn to code so as soon as I discovered a form in which I could practice interaction design um, I was super into it straight away and really interested in the different kinds of um, experiences you could design and questions you could ask and stories you could tell within the medium of interaction so as soon as I discovered pervasive games it's like discovering um, your bit of music or your bit of yeah absolutely um, anything it's you like find your oh, niche like, right I always thought that I just didn't like music because all my friends listened to Radio 1. And then the first time, like, the biggest impact Tony Hawk had on my life was that I listened to punk music for the first time. And suddenly there was this stuff which I could use, like, super early Napster to go find and dig up. And then I knew I could find out where record stores were that had these CDs and stuff. Um, I think that's like, true for like oh. a whole generation of people that like yeah, through yeah, games but... like SSX and Tony Hawk's and all that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I found I've actually written an article about that for um, Read Only Memory on, uh, t- but not on, on Tony Hawk and its effect on UK skate culture as opposed to uh, UK punk music scene. Um, but yeah, it's, it had a huge effect. Um, and just in discovering punk, I was like, oh, I do like music. It's just I like this music. Yeah. And in the same way as when I found like pervasive games, I was like. Oh no, but I can I can tell a story in this world too. It's not uh, it's not necessarily the like interaction design is a thing that I can play with and that I can make things out of and that I can think with and tell stories with. So, what are some of these experiences of these kind of pervasive games or theatre? Um, what that I experienced or that I made. That you experience, like the, the because I'm not 100 percent sure what what you mean. I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Oh, uh, okay. So much more well versed in this than I am. Sure. I mean, um, what's a, a good example? So uh, a company which I actually ended up working for, and the reason that I moved to London uh, four years ago, but bef- way before then, and who are a case study in my PhD, are a company called Hide and Seek, 
who were a London-based uh, festival originally, and then a company that made games for loads of different situations of like street games. Um, so, like, I guess something that a lot of people have heard of is like Capture the Flag. Um, th- that is an example of a sh- of a street game. Um, yeah. And uh, but people were sort of designing them for themselves and designing them with a, a little bit more complexity or a little bit of a spin on things. Um, and the in, thing that really interested me about pervasive games when I was discovering them is that they played with the city and city space and urban space as a part of the material of the of the work, of the of what you might call um it's like a canvas and some oil paints. They're the materials of painting oil paintings and in the pervasive game the city space the urban space um was a part of the materials of the work and um a super good example of a pervasive game which is easy to explain is designed by um hide and seek for a collection of games um which were written onto these kind of big round um I don't know what the material's called, but you stick it to the ground basically and it's waterproof and it stays stuck to the ground and they were around Somerset House and they okay. were sort of games to just a simple rule set written on the ground which you would come across and you look down and you could play it right then and there with the space and the stuff around you. And uh, one of them, which I can't remember the name of, it's probably called Zap or something like that. And it's um, it's about security cameras. It's essentially the job is that... Um, um, is it called Snap Zap? It's called Snap Zap. And um, one of you is the security cameras and one of you is trying to evade the security cameras. Probably doing a bad job of explaining this rule set. Um, and uh, uh, you, as the person trying to evade the security cameras, every time you see a CCTV camera, you have to point your hands at it like they're a gun and go, Zap! And you have to say that before the security camera player has also seen it and said, Snap! Because they're trying to get a picture of you and you're trying right, to right, disable right. Okay, all okay. the cameras. And that is, number game. one, a super simple... They did a better job than me. A super easy to explain set of rules. Uh, something that can be played with your landscape. The landscape is part of the material of the game. And as a final like socio-political point of interest, it makes you super aware of all the CCTV cameras in your area. <laughs> That is amazing. I, I didn't realise that. So you would have worked with uh, uh, Mark and Margaret at Hide and Seek then? Yeah, Mark, Mark Sorrell. Yeah, I know Mark very well. He's a good friend. Yeah, um, he was... Um, well, so Margaret... Um, by the time I was working at Hide and Seek, Margaret was in America. Um, so Alex was leading the studio in uh, London. Mark Sorrell uh, is who I sat next to, and we are weirdly friends. Oh, man, friends that is a shame. Because we, we, we are very... We are very different uh, i am quite radical i would describe my politics as anarchist and um i am someone who believes in the good of humankind sorrel is probably the opposite of that but we very often <laughs> we're both very rigorous people so we often very often came to the exact same conclusions on things from a completely different process and like we would have these discussions slash arguments because we were just sat next to each other the whole time that you would often just find people stopping and just staring at us as they would listen to us <laughs> debating a point about like the finer points of a, a complex humane philosophy or something it was it was fun I times i did do some work as well imagine that <laughs> that's amazing 
So I'm going to take a, a brief detour. Um, uh, these are like relatively quick fire questions. Um, mm-hmm. They don't have to be. It's just whatever. So Hannah, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Um... <laughs> I mean, good luck getting a short answer out of me because I'm just going to refute the premise of every question if I don't like it. And I uh, I don't really like the idea of... All right, so why would I play a game? I like to enjoy games. And okay. um, I like to be good at things. Um, why on earth would I want to play a game that someone could be best at? <laughs> like, I either want to spend all my time being the best at that game or not play it. Those are the two options. So I don't have the time for that. So the kind of games I enjoy are not the kind of games that you can be best at. <laughs> Otherwise, like the the world would be a bad place to be in for me. So um, like, uh, I guess that's a really good way in the way that you set up this question, a really good way to defeat death in this instance uh, would be to select a game which cannot be won. And then I could live in, uh, you know, uh, purgatory for the rest of my life um so you have to think choose... of a game that can't be won though though okay um burly men at sea i don't know what that is it does actually have death in it which is why i chose it just now um burly men at sea burly men at sea it's uh who's it by it's a pretty recent game i think it was nominated in the igf uh burly men See, it has a great soundtrack. It's incredibly well scored. It's a good uh, name. Sort of, um, and it's really beautiful animation as well. And it's it's just kind of a shortish game experience. Maybe it takes forty five minutes of your time, and it's a bit uh, not quite Odyssey ish because it's short and it finishes. But it's about going on a journey with three characters and the choices that you make and the places around the island that they live on that you go to um, my internet connection is pretty bad so it's not allowing me to find out who made burly men at sea right now um but it's it's really good you should play it it's really beautiful the art is incredible and the uh, soundtrack uh sound effects etc are super super good i'm i'm uh there's so many areas i want to go with this but there's i'm, I'm i don't want to take up your entire evening um, so we'll forget about the fact that it's it's the argument of what, what constitutes a game or not, and I will I will offer a counter argument with the best that uh, you're 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 you saying that you're not interested in games that you can be best at because we opened this whole chat about you talking about how much you've been cycling and racing and trying to be the best at that. So clearly you see some yeah, but mate, merit I spend in being like, best at something. I spend 14 hours of my week. Like I am actually trying to be the best at cycling. I want to be a pro cyclist and I will be disappointed if I don't at least race internationally in the next year. So I am choosing to spend all of my life uh, pursuing that. I like 14 hours of on bike training and an hour of strength and conditioning every day is currently a thing that I'm doing with my life. So like, I, that, that so I you think don't you don't refute the aspect of best at you just don't want to play again because you're already trying to be best at something else exactly why would i want to be best at i certainly again? believe that you could be a best at something like to a certain level okay. and then i guess best at becomes a qualitative rather than quantitative uh argument but um I, yeah i'm not saying that there aren't games that you can be best at i'm saying i don't want to play games that you can be best at okay okay <laughs> i won't be the best and that would just be gutting 
Well, a second question then, which you've kind of already answered just there, is are you are you a competitive uh, games player? Do you has there been times when you've become locked into some horrible feud that has lasted years in some video game? Um, do you mean like uh, with other players or with the game? Like a kind of either or. Battle? If you can think of an example, it doesn't, I mean, I mean really, I'm, I'm I really imagining with other people, but yeah, um, with other people. Uh... Like, do you shout and swear when you're playing Mario Kart or th- you know things like that? Do you get competitive within the game itself? No, because again, I don't feel like. Well, okay, I guess I very rarely lose Mario Kart. Um, <laughs> and when I do, it's kind of like, oh, well, at least that person now doesn't feel bad because there's also a social situation which you don't want to lose. So, like, the the winning doesn't just persist in the game world. There's also a social situation which you're trying to balance when you play multiplayer games, which you also want a win in everyone having had a decent enough time and you don't want everyone to feel rubbish. So I think that winning in multiplayer situations is a complex social and um, gameplay experience and a a win and a best game is probably a balance of everyone, um, you know, like you probably don't want the sorest loser to lose too much. Otherwise you lose the social game of, like playing a multiplayer game Does that makes sense yeah yeah it, it makes you you're putting me to shame you, you that is a much more noble and socially conscious answer i i, I would uh, never think um, you could, you could the well-being of the people as well as noble i think a little bit <laughs> i suppose yeah <laughs> um that, that's very interesting well on a, on a similar subject then um if you're prone to such things what what is or what has been your your worst rage quit i do you know what i don't I feel really weird about that word because I which which one rage okay like I I don't think I'd I waste such a potent feeling as rage on games I think I save it for politicians and um like fascists <laughs> I just I I feel like uh. I, I, I see that all the time, like rage quit. And I'm like, I have, don't think I have ever thrown down a controller in in rage. Um, but I'm also an incredible... Um, my instinct when dealing with any problem is to solve it and not to get upset by it. Like some people, when they drop the phone in in the washing up bowl, might go, oh, God, I'm such an idiot. And I go, well, I've done that and I can't undo it. And I either can't afford a new one or I can't afford a new one. And I'm sure that I can find someone who's got a spare phone that can lend me for a while. And in the same way as that you might call it noble, maybe like balancing a social situation so that everyone is having an okay time. um, I would call it maybe just a little bit uh, self-aware and odd. And I'm probably the same way when it comes to rage in that it doesn't feel productive. And so I choose not to feel it. Um, uh, so uh, the, the, again, I'm, I'm badly refuting the, the premise of your question. No, 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 it's, it's good. It's interesting. I, I don't know why I would play a game that would fill me with rage. Also, like, um, I think a lot of that though. Like, for it is. Uh, how, how do I articulate this? I think, like, on your point that you know you, you will withhold rage for things that are genuinely worthy of it, and but for me, like, I, I do. I get very angry. Only if I feel like something is unfair. So if I'm screaming at like a game because I definitely should have made that jump 
and now I haven't made that jump and now I've lost all this progress. That that kind of rage I'm feeling is the exact same rage I'd shout at like um like uh, Donald Trump or Theresa May or someone because it is that that futility of like I I can't believe this is happening. This is so frustrating. I can't believe that just happened and it's just that that pure anger in that moment of just I guess sometimes I observe that a thing is really hard and then I just go, you are bad game design. (laughs) Like Your curve is not suited to my playing style, so I reject your game design. Um, (laughs) But um, I guess there's there's another uh, slightly tiresome uh, sociopolitical point that I would make is that um, uh, rage... Anger uh, is a a super uh, useful, potent emotion. And as far back as Aristotle, it was being argued that um, storytelling, and uh, I would definitely put games within that that realm, um, is a really good way to uh, short-circuit people's emotions to uh, produce catharsis, which is a word that we know which uh, was used back in Aristotle to describe that feeling of, of getting uh, getting your revolutionary um, uh, or um, subversive ideas out on the page so you could live them vicariously through a character and then you wouldn't yeah. need to act on them. Um, like Augusta Brile, who's an incredible play theorist and who everyone should go and read the books of because he's this great, brilliant uh, Brazilian revolutionary. What's his name? Augusto Boal, uh, B-O-A-L, and um, some of the best like game design theory out there just coming from the um, background of street performance. Um, and um, he tried to develop a bunch of performance that was about cultivating anger and rage on the streets. And he would do these invisible performances where he would basically just start arguments with people uh, with his like troop of performers. And they would try and encourage people to have a debate about politics on the street. And there's a bunch of ethical concerns with like uh, people not realising they're a part of a thing. Um, but uh, I... I guess I um, have absorbed a bunch of that, and <laughs> this makes this now makes me sound like I'm making a super grand point, which I'm not necessarily. But like, <laughs> this is part of why I don't feel rage for the um, the things that I can control because I feel like I need rage for the things I genuinely can't control because that drives me to finding a solution. Like all of my rage is always connected to, to like a lack of control, and it's. And I think that begins a problem-solving impulse, which I find useful to preserve. That is, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed with your your pragmatism. Um, <laughs> I genuinely am. Like it just, it, it, it's, it, it's. I, I wish I had that same level of of self-control. Um, but then I suppose I've never really thought as deeply about it as as you clearly have, and I've never, yeah, really examined it to that that level. I'm fascinated by the this Brazilian guy arguing with people on the streets. That is, I mean, amazing. I've d- I've definitely glossed over that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very dismissing his whole point. Of... <laughs> yeah, that Brazilian guy you argue, yeah, he's, he's, he's yeah. <laughs> like definitely. Um, yeah, games for actors and non-actors is a really good book to have a read of. Oh man, I'm into that. Um, okay, so uh, I'm still on the quickfire questions. I'm doing so uh, well at being quickfire. No, right? no, it's, it's good. It's good. Um, we we touched on this briefly earlier, but uh, one of the t- talking actually this is this is quite a, a, a neat segue. Um, talking of the you know the the emotional response that you can a game can provoke in you, like one of the rarest is still uh, laughter. So can you think of games that have really made you laugh? Yeah, and I was 
uh, I guess. I think about different kinds of laughter that you get. Um, so, uh, and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to talk about pejorative laughter because sometimes I laugh at games because they're bad. And I'm not going to talk about that because there's no point in talking about games I think are bad. Um, I, uh, I laugh a lot at the games of Alan Hazelden. Um, I'm, I have a copy of his upcoming game, Cosmic Express, in test flight on my phone at the moment. And I will laugh at his games in the same way as I will laugh at jazz. When I see people playing jazz and they do a thing <laughs> that I never could have imagined that they could do and make it work. Like I never could have imagined someone making that sound up on the spot alongside others before. And they do it and I laugh in joy and surprise at the ridiculousness of someone else's brain that I could never understand. And I feel like that when I play Alan's puzzle games. Um, he makes largely like... Uh, I guess not block pushing puzzle games, uh, but he has made some which are, are they block pushing? I don't know. I'm not very good at the names for genres sometimes. Um, but Cosmic Express is a game where you have to um, route a train line from one side of a spacecraft to the other. And you have to pick okay. up little aliens and drop them off at their destinations in certain orders. And certain aliens can go only go in certain boxes. And... Um, a previous game of his was A Good Snowman is Hard to Build and that was I guess spot pushing because it was um, you're building snowmen and you're on a snowfield and there were different snowballs and if you the number of times you pushed a snowball the bigger it got and you need a big one a medium one and a little one in order to build the snowman and there were a certain number of tiles that you'd roll it over and it would become bigger or uh, medium or small Um, and so you had to do it in the right order and then get the big and the small and the uh, tiniest one in the right order onto the snowman and then became a snowman. Anyway, puzzle games with uh, a a fine veneer of beautiful art um, on them is... uh, And Alan made Cosmic Express with uh, Tew from um, uh, Klondike Collective and uh, Benjamin's surname... What's Benjamin's surname? He's really lovely, anyway. I can't remember his surname. I apologise for him. Um... Cosmic Express is just one of those games where I will play it and I will laugh when I have discovered a solution that for hours has been impossible for me to find. And I will go, yes, Alan Hazelden, I beat you. I beat you again. I finally worked out how your brain works. And I'm not going to remember how I did that. And please don't ask me to do it again. Um, And then there are kinds of... What other laughter? There's the... Have you played Oasis by, uh, um, uh, it's uh, another Klondike Collective, uh, by Gib um, from the Klondike Collective. Um, Gib made this game called Oasis, which, in which you, you fly, but it doesn't okay. punish me for not being able to fly things in video games usually. It's just like you literally just move and the plane moves from side to side. It, it can't crash. And you're in a beautifully coloured... Um, environment and you enjoy sort of just moving this plane around it has this really great movement and these trails and the the music is beautiful and the colours are just astounding and it allows you to play for a certain amount of time and then uh, the kind of camera closes on it and it's like you go through a dimension but you never see where it goes to and then the end of a game is and I guess like plug your ears for like 15 seconds if you don't want a spoiler um okay uh, at the end it says um i never something to the effect of i never met my grandfather he he died in a particular 
um, war. Um, and um, uh, I, I like to imagine that he wasn't killed. Um, he used to fly aeroplanes. I like to imagine that he wasn't killed. I like to imagine that he flew into a different dimension. And then the, then the game starts again. And that tiny little narrative hook, that beautiful little story, um, that tiny nugget of information suddenly completely recolours your experience of the game, which is, again, flying this plane, but it's a sort of a generative um, environment, so there'll be different colours in a different environment. Um, and you are suddenly <laughs> playing the imagined... Um, uh, the, the dream of a child who never knew his grandfather, and it, like I think I, I laughed at the um, sort of childish joy of that yeah, absolutely. moment when that when that was revealed, um, and then I guess the final kind of laughter, which it might be nice to talk about, is um, there's a game which I've been playing uh, quite a lot of recently, which is released tomorrow. Um, and I should declare an interest in that my housemate and best friend uh, was producer on the game, um, <laughs> uh, but which is why I have a copy of it on his yeah. uh, PS PS4. Um, and I've been playing that while he's been at GDC, GDC. Um, and it's a game called Loot Rascals, which is a, um, a roguelike uh, card-based game. I've forgotten the word for when you have to uh, build decks. It's just called deck building. Yeah, I think it's just a deck building game. Yeah, okay, it's a deck building roguelike. um, And it is very funny uh, because it's just been made by some funny people and it has a particular British style of of humour and comedy, which definitely, I feel, connects to our heritage of comedy. They've not made a game that feels like it could have been made by Americans. um, They've worked really closely with a Scottish um, animator, who's like done a bunch of the like character design and and art and um he's voiced this character that sort of leads you into the game and and he's like this incredibly funny animator he makes these like comedy shorts which are just absolutely ridiculously hilarious in a very scottish way and they and they've just made this game which on on the face of it is a perfectly enjoyable um roguelike with like cards you can optimize and i like optimizing things that feels real nice but it just has the touches and the animation and the sounds and the character design and the names of the characters which are just really funny uh oh, it's and this davy swap has yes it i is. just looked that up um oh he's brilliant he's so brilliant he, he's incredible and uh like there is a particular character who's really, uh, a, a particular like uh ra- like they're all called rascals the monsters that you have to try and defeat and there's a particular rascal called bolus girl and um she, she's got a really deep voice and she just goes bolus bolus every time you try and attack her <laughs> and she runs away from you and then when she attacks you she goes bolus and then when she dies she goes bolus <laughs> it's, i don't know I, it's uh it's not the kind of thing i think anyone <laughs> would imagine i would like but i i have enjoyed it and um, for the sake of my housemate being able to pay his rent uh, next month, he should all go and buy it. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> is that you being sympathetic or is that you being Machiavellian um, again? Oh, that's both. I mean, you can be both. You can be both <laughs> humane be both. and Machiavellian yeah, no, at the same time. And sometimes it's it's very humane to direct your Machiavellian nature in a in a you know humanitarian direction. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, let let's sort, let's go back to like. I guess that the last sort of 
when did you, when did you leave university like like post university time and like post hide and seek so what have you been up to for the past sort of few years yeah so um i finished my phd probably 5 years ago now five, four and a half i moved to oh shit it's march isn't it so i've moved to london 4 years ago um i moved working part time with hide and seek as a researcher um and um have been making stuff made made, made community uh, an interactive theater for maybe two years toured a couple of solo shows um at the same time as making uh sound walks and designing pervasive games and then um just decided two and a half years ago having having friends in games who were in pervasive games from the game side as well as me who was in pervasive games from the theatre side. Yeah. Um I just decided I wanted to work in games. So I um I wanted to write in and for games in particular. So I decided to write about games because there's more of an easy access kind of into that for a while, yeah. thinking that if I write about games and I talk about games because I do have all these ideas and that kind of stuff um and a unique perspective on it all as well and a, and a reasonably unique perspective as um if uh, games is still not particularly on board with interdisciplinarity so i can at least bring a different disciplines perspective um for the most part i should say um uh-huh. so i thought well i'll write about games and then people will see that i know about games and also that i can write <laughs> and hopefully that will then mean that i'm speaking to people um and i also you know enjoy writing about games but I, it wasn't i don't want to though some people do that incredibly well but i take so much so much time and and <laughs> research over everything that i write i was never going to be a profitable uh, critic um I can't write a thing in a day. It takes me a week of mulling and researching and reading and footnoting myself until I can write a thing. Um, So it was a combination of speaking at an event called Feral Vector maybe three years ago, where I did a sort of performative-ish talk on um, called Where Games Break, which was my first foray into talking about uh, games specifically for games audiences. And it was about not um, how games are... um, um, like literally broken like buggy it was about how um games uh have stopped working for me because they've alienated me or um how games have chosen to um throw me out of the uh the immersion effectively and where games have sort of broken with real life or broken into it um and and thereafter i did a residency at video brains um where I pitched a residency which was um, called a psychogeography of games, which was exploring how the um, the places that game designers live have uh, or have loved have affected their game design. So, um, I oh, that's super with, interesting. Yeah, I went. It was really, it was really enjoyable. I, I I went on a walk with six different game designers in a place that was important to them or that had affected them. And on that walk, we talked about their game design and I wrote a kind of performance talk about it. And I say performance talk because I am always interested in how form can best express content and how we don't have to just stand and say some words. Sometimes the best way to demonstrate a thing is to practice it, uh, to do it. So I um, did a talk. I, I went for a walk in Cumbria with Ed Key, who 
I now work with, but back then I wasn't working with. Um, Ed Key, who, who made uh, Proteus with David Kanega, um, I went with him through a walk through the Cumbrian countryside in which he grew up. We got rained on and lost and a mountain in some mist. Um, and then through that, I, I talked to him about the practice of making the of Proteus and, and how perhaps the landscapes of Gripen have made him think about his game design. And then when I did the talk, um, I did a, uh, for want of a better word, a procedurally generated talk in that it was made in lots of modules and I invited someone up to shuffle the talk at the beginning and then I delivered the talk in the order in which it was given and it hung together because I carefully oh, that's designed fun. it so that it was procedurally effective, but it was going to be different depending on that shuffle. So it's, you know, that kind of like small little thing which can comment on the content through the form that I enjoy doing. And um, yeah, and just uh, writing more and more about games and then people knew my writing. I also, um, every time I got an art commission, I was trying to turn it into... Uh, like a a games thing so I I did a I pitched to a a commission for the social housing um, arts network I um, collected stories from a um, an estate in East London um, called the Teviot Estate I I collected stories from locals and ran uh, twine workshops and poetry workshops for English learners and worked with local kids and stuff and uh, invited people to tell me stories and then I made it into a twine game where you explored the uh, stories of the people from this it was it was it was a wandering twine game where you could meet people and learn about them um, and listen to the things that they had to say um, and, and are these all available online like can people go and find these yeah I mean te- in the show notes and stuff Tevia, yeah. Tales is playable it's um popularpeople.co.uk um, you can buy a book of um, the psychogeography of games, uh, uh, the texts of the talks, um, with some drawings that I did and stuff. And that's just like, it's my website, which is hannahnicklin.com forward slash shop. Um, and then I think there's also like a, a um, I did a, a durational thing at Game City, a durational story collecting game where I invited people to exchange stories of games they have known and loved. And it didn't have to be a video game, although it could be experiences with games. And I had this big like table with um, cards with like two or three or four word titles on them. And you'd pick an index card and I'd tell you that person's story. It would only be told to you then and there. That was then your story to take home and you would give me a story to put it in place. So it was like a story exchange. And every time someone told me a story, I would I would sort of make notes about it. And then I turned that into a, a big um, kind of piece of, for want of a better word, spoken word, which I delivered at the finishing night of Game City. And that's another zine that people can buy in, uh, on, on my shop. And through all of that stuff, I guess I, you know, I became well enough. People came aware of me to start like asking me to do bits of game writing and producing uh, and stuff like that. And um uh, about a year ago Ed Key invited me to work on Forest of Sleep which is a procedural storytelling game so I've worked as both producer and narrative designer on that and um, then about a month ago um, because uh, the funding for Ed's thing is a little bit like uncertain he's not ready to pitch it to a publisher yet so he's just yeah. sort of finding pots of money here and there and we thought we weren't going to have any money um, at Christmas so I just you know uh, put myself out there and said people hire me for game writing um 
And although we've got three more months of money for, for us to sleep, I've also just started working on another project, um, which has been going for a super long time. I'm just coming into the end of it to help sort of put, like, get it to the finish line kind of thing, a, a game called Metacione, yeah. um, which is a beautiful like garden growing game. Um, that's not a very good description of it. Um, it's the game where you play as a, a girl called Kai. I'm into it, to be honest. I quite like the idea of a garden growing game. Yeah, I've been well, playing I mean, a lot of Stardew Valley over the past couple it, of months. So. Essentially, it is. You, you arrive on this island, which is full of kind of mutants, uh, and you're Kai, and you're arriving on this island, and your grandfather lives on this island, and he's ill, and you have to care for him. And he's like this kind of spiritual dude, uh, this uh, kind of witch doctor for the... For the um, for the island and it's your job to kind of look after him but you sort of uncover the stories of all of the people and mutants who coexist on this island and you're also invited to grow gardens on this island and solve a problem at the heart of the the game but I don't know how much I'm allowed to reveal it's called Metacione and it's going to be really cool because um, I'm working on it that's a joke. That's that's a, that was a joke. You could have laughed then. It's too late. No, you said it there. I'm going to cut that so it does. You don't say that, and people just, <laughs> just think. Just leave a really you're long really silence. Really that proud of yourself. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah, I think be, also being proud of yourself is is easier than not being proud of yourself as well. Oh, of course. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> um, what what else? Like, I'm I'm thinking in terms of like when you sort of had this decision like oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna do game stuff and, and made a conscious effort to, to move in that direction were there specific games or things that you played or saw that made you do that or was it more the the people that you were around i think it's because i uncovered my bit of games like i discovered my bit of punk uh like 10 years ago and... but that bit of games though isn't is i i feel like is relatively new like it's only since kind of the the tools of creation that have become more democratized that you've you've been able to see this kind of I mean um, there are there are examples in the past but it's not really like a rich scene. I feel like that it, I feel like I'm not as capable of talking about that as someone like my housemate Pat is able to talk about because he is a super history buff when it comes to games. I think games is bad at keeping its own history at the moment oh it really is and um doesn't appreciate things like good curation and um good archiving and all that kind of thing so i think the idea that an experimental part of games is relatively new is actually a pretty fallacious statement it's just that it's really hard to access all the stuff that was like that before um, like there are know, things I, yeah. about games from 20 years ago which are pulling out the same kinds of narratives around uh, like what we can make and what the questions around how we make are and um, there were people doing stuff with um, like, I don't know, um, like the net art scene and, and sometimes it didn't quite fall into what video games thought were video games but there were people using game tools or digital tools to tell stories interestingly and super influenced by games but it just ended up being called art or digital art like yeah i, I think that i think those scenes have been here for a while and you should definitely get my my housemate on to talk about like all of this super interesting stuff but so so i don't necessarily think that i don't think you can say uh, you, you can say if you want to. Um, I don't think I agree that um, the, this little niche of games has only existed super recently. I think... oh, no, I don't think that. I just think that it, it is it is 
profligated over the past couple of years. Like there were, there are examples. Like, like um, I, I spoke to this guy Mel Kreitcher on the show last year, who's like, oh, he's an incredibly fascinating man. He 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 started the very first video game company in the UK, and all all kinds of crazy stuff. Like he built the first skyscrapers in Dubai. He's a very much this amazing raconteur. But he did. He made a, a bunch of games for the Spectrum called Pymania. Um, and a part of that was like this quest for a golden sundial, which was the, one of the very early kind of args, basically. And he had people all around the country searching for this golden sundial. Um, and he, he made a game called uh, Deus Ex Machina, which was basically like the story of life in a mm. video game form. And you would play through the seven ages of man. And it had this amazing soundtrack and like brilliant guest artists. He, it kind of ruined the company ultimately. But. But like, but he's considered like uh, a visionary because of that, because of how there weren't other games like that, and and he was very much ahead of his time, I think. Um, yeah, I'm I just d- curious, like, because it, 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 it wouldn't, have, for example, it wouldn't have been something that you necessarily would have come across growing up, and not, it wasn't something I came across growing up. No, but, but we didn't. You know, we we, years, we lived in everywhere. the middle of nowhere, and we we knew what was um, what the machinations of market capitalism was able to get to our parents door when we grew up so i feel like a lot of it is just growing up and finding your niche and this stuff is always i i I really don't really i struggle a little bit with people before their time and i'm sure this guy that you describe is super great um these people before the time though are almost always white guys i i don't know about this guy's race um you've gendered him as as male but i know he's a white guy um i i just like um like there are people making exp- experiment and this ties into us being pretty bad our history uh there are people talking now about questions in vr and innovative things in vr and things which are incredible and people would never have thought of and like if you go back uh 15 20 years to mit when char davis she was making these incredible vr experiences which you controlled through breathing um like headset experience vr experiences where your breath in and out allowed you to move through a um kind of a naturalish space and it was just about existing in this space and it was also beautiful to watch because it was lit in a way and it actually thought about the experience of the people outside the vr experience as well which a lot of vr really doesn't when it's exhibited um and people were asking questions then that sounds which, amazing which are people are asking now and i know about that because i char davis actually was super connected to a, a dance background and so i know about her through my performance studies and I, I just think that people before their time are really before their time they're just interdisciplinary that they're, they're actually sort of making connections but would you not argue with... that she was before her time though she was in her time i mean what does it mean to be before your time she was in her time and people didn't listen to her because she was a woman or people don't remember her because she it was a it was a time when i think you can certainly argue that uh hardware and means of distribution have their time and she produced an incredible thing but she wasn't able to distribute it in the same way as we will when you know, if any of these, like if PS, is PSVR actually takes off, then there will be a platform through which people can distribute things, and yeah. um, like perhaps some of the ideas and questions that she examined will be able to be distributed. But I don't. I think that the. I don't know. Before your time seems to me to um, imply that 
history is a, is a weight on your ability to come up with a thing and that it can be a limiter. And I, I don't believe it is. It, I think that removes um, responsibility from people and it's people not listening to those people and it's the distribution systems we have or haven't invented yet and it's the... Um, the ability we have as a art form to have a um for want of a better word institutional memory <laughs> like i i think like you always have to remember the the people whose shoulders you're standing on and the people absolutely who yeah will be the shoulders to stand on and that idea of being before your time kind of it conjures to me the idea of someone just floating on no one's shoulders which doesn't exist i don't know but again like this is why I'm a pain in the ass because I I reject the premise of all questions ever. So. I'm I'm surprised at how uh, like I I I understand your your point I think, but I'm I'm just surprised at how adamant you feel about it. Like if if you know what I mean. I think like, that it's I, it's possibly an overreaction because um, I spend a lot of time listening to people talking about games like they are um, that their whole value rests in the fact that they are innovative or new or this has never been done before or um so the technology is new uh and like sometimes a thing doesn't have to be new sometimes it can just be good and sometimes the way that we make things good is that we work at them over and over again until they are no longer new but we are proficient and there is this kind of um uh what do you call it when you're always pushing a border um it's like what Star Trek was about and the Wild West. What's that called when you're always... The frontier. Like, yeah, this frontierism. The frontier, you're the frontier. Like this frontierism in, um, in the rhetoric around games I find incredibly frustrating because it actually almost demands that you ignore history. Because if you don't know what's come before, you can say what you're doing is new and never before done. And if you say to someone, well, actually, that has done before, and they've asked these questions and they've done all of this work for us so we can stand on their shoulders and do something, like, better, um, is some is somehow to a, a certain kind of rhetoric, like saying you're not good because this has been done before, when what you're saying is let's learn from this breadth and depth of uh, interdisciplinary knowledge and uh, like make something great that is just great. It doesn't have to be new to be good. Oh, absolutely not. No, I mean, everything is everything is a remix. Like there is very, there's nothing really brand new. Everything is just a version of that. And I mean, I, like, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm trying not to argue with you because I don't, I don't feel like I really disagree with you. <laughs> just, I feel like I need to clarify my point more. But yeah, sure. And fine. also because if you wanted to argue with me, we, I, I would, I would argue that until night. the end of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah no. Let, let's let's. Uh, but back to the, the my, my my original question was just whether or not there there were not necessarily new things or anything, but just games or experiences that emerged in the last couple of years that made you feel like you'd made the right decision at least like things that have really in, in, impressed you or inspired you in in this kind of in this area sure um because I, there's so much more of it i suppose yeah yeah and i think that like the um the the easiest answer to that is kentucky root zero um like there are lots of games which are almost good <laughs> Uh, there are lots of games which are imperfect and I love them for their imperfections and there are lots of games which everyone says are great and then I play them and I'm like you all told me the story was good but it's just uh, it's just another white guy whose problems I'm supposed to care about um, 
and like I'm not saying I should never care about white guys issues but that is all media ever asks me to do and I just have this level that I'm topped out at on <laughs> and and so like um Kentucky Route Zero however is um just this this masterpiece it should be like a, a I've penguin never played it. modern classic it's is it's, it finished now? Is have they released like all the parts of it? I don't think so. I think they have. Well, I'm actually only on uh, Act Three. I haven't uh, even okay. played Act Four yet. And um, in famous fashion, I'm probably getting those act numbers wrong. And that might I be don't think my computer is yet. good enough to run it, unfortunately. Oh really? Um, yeah, I've got a really pretty poor, very old Mac. So well, I mean, it's not going to be to everyone's tastes, but it uh, and. Like in places, I think it still is like a little bit unwieldy. I I think that it uh, in certain places, um, but just in terms of a a game that speaks to our modern experience, our contemporary experience of living in the world, of living in late capitalism, in all of the things that that contains, and does so absolutely without setting it in that world and with being overly didactic. It in no way like makes heavy points. You could completely miss it and just enjoy the story. But it, it is thick and heavy with the experience of debt and homelessness of a precariat living in late capitalism a uh, people our age who um freelance and are probably never i've never heard the word to... precariat before that is amazing have you not that is such it's, a good word i've never it's, heard that it's a it's before. perfect word to describe the, oh it's perfect yeah 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 it's i think that i think it was a maybe a year ago there was a study in like class in contemporary uk and precariat is 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 my class basically it's the people who are middle class in lifestyle and have university educations or higher um often um but also describes people uh like my brother who's university education but he works as a security guard on a zero hours contract and if he has a day off because he's sick then he will they will give him no work for two for two weeks out of punishment and he won't be able to pay his rent it's the gig economy essentially yeah the gig economy sure um so, so like the like Kentucky Route Zero just taps into this rootlessness and this homelessness,ness and it also evokes like I've been to America once in my life before I stopped flying because of the environment. I was twelve, and um, we went over to visit family on my mum's side because my great aunt was a GI bride and went over there, and then left her GI and remarried uh, a, a Native American um, man. And That's they, a, a this, hell of a story. Yes, and we, we never really saw them because we could never afford to fly over there. But um, when I was 11, I broke both my arms on a caravanning holiday that my dad had inexplicably insured. And we used the insurance money to go to America. Um, what? And, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> so America is, to me, this 12-year-old memory of long a long desert drive, because it's California... And everything tasting of sugar, even the bread tasting of sugar, which yep. I didn't know then, but I do know now is because Iowa have inexplicably great control over their political situation. So they have to grow corn, which they then make corn syrup out of. So they sweeten far too much of their Oh, food. This, this, in the milk as well. The milk is the <laughs> yeah, one that really gets I, me. It's, it's disgusting. Incredible. Um, and so it's just this like the sugar and this dryness and this vastness is my only experience of America and I haven't thought about it for years and then I play Kentucky Route Zero and these um, elegantly 
infinitesimally elegantly placed pixels because they they don't um they don't use uh anti-aliasing so everything is is incredibly carefully placed um they they in in 10 minutes evoke that taste and that dust and that that um that vast and um like uh that feeling of of being a a small thing in a in a a land that could actually kill you like i don't think i experienced that in many parts of the uk i feel like no no matter how far you go you could probably find a lovely old pub and they'd let you in and let you sit by the fire like the moors are a place that could kill you uh there are mountains in scotland and, and wales that could kill you but my experience of england is not that it's a land that will eat you that will swallow you up in which you can vanish and america Mm. felt like that and kentucky route zero when you play it it feels like that it feels like that version of america the america that could swallow you and you never would have been and that also feels what late capitalism feels like and they put those two things together with this incredible art and with this um this story (laughs) that is symbolic and also feels very true to life and the ways of storytelling that they use the way that they flip your expectations about it being one particular character's story and then it and then they change who that central character is and the way that they report story to you and the dialogue and the writing is just pinpoint perfect in places and it will give you choices it will give you two choices and you're sort of aware that that choice may not have affected the um the outcome of of what happens next it may you have maybe very limited agency maybe the agency you have is the ability to decide whether today you are you who is nice or you who is grumpy but in that decision really that there is the only decision that you ever have to make in the world and you certainly can ever make in late capitalism in which you're completely tied up to a certain version of way of life and a way of living and kentucky route zero just it just it gets all of that and it's not perfect nothing is but it it is the the game which i think that um makes me excited about uh working with games as part of my was one of the mediums in which i'm interested in working in i don't think i've ever wanted to play a game more in my life (laughs) especially now that i can't play it yeah i might have really disappointed you in in the future like you might get to it you know this is this doesn't relate to me because not everything relates to everyone like no that's might true get that experience from playing overwatch and i don't like so. g- generally like uh, this is a thing i'm uh like i i almost never in my life like i certainly don't i i never go to games for story that's just that, that, that that's not what i think of when i go to a game i go to game for 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 twitch and reflexes and puzzles and i i don't and sometimes if a story comes along and that makes me feel good or more engaged or more immersed in in a world that's trying to make like all for the better but it's not it's not where i go to to seek out story at all generally um and and the kind of the way that game like for instance firewatch like was a big a big game for everybody last year or for a lot of people um and i just i couldn't it, it to me it's 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 a really good story ruined with with awful pacing like it's just this that would be a great movie i'm sure the movie they're working on is is going to be brilliant the game was just it just annoyed me because i just wanted to know what happens you know yeah i mean i also didn't get on well with firewatch and i feel i feel kind of bad about saying that because they seem like such good people oh absolutely yeah and 
a lot of what they made is super beautiful. Um, I, I, I just, and actually my, my computer couldn't run it particularly well after a certain point. Like, so I actually gave up on it quite early, but that is actually kind of what I was talking about when I was saying that I really couldn't be bothered to care about the struggles of another, you know, late 30 something white guy who, who's, who's like, like suffered a thing, but like, (laughs) what about her? (laughs) Like, she, like I don't know. Like maybe I want to see the game about the woman with dementia, or like did he just leave her? Or like he doesn't seem like I know he's not supposed to be a good guy, but I'm I'm just so bored of like having to care about this person who is always the guy who would screw me over, or always the guy who would screw people like me over, or just always the story that I've heard and. And whose flaws are the ones that I have to deal with every day in every bit of my media. And then just like, as well as the game not running particularly, I was like, I don't care about you. And I'm sure you're going to have some great dialogue with this woman, but I want to play her. Yeah. <laughs> or like, I want to play someone else. But, in, I mean, in I, this I world. think we're both. I I don't like because I'm I'm a thirty something white dude. Like everything is about me, and I'm obviously delighted about that every day. I mm. wake up and clap my hands. But that that would not necessarily occur to me in in the game i'm purely talking about the the way that it told its story i just mm. like i found it like gone home is the only one of of those kind of like, the the walking simulators if you want to use use that term that that has really worked for me and i found it very pleasurable and because it was compact because you're in a house and that's fine and so the the pay it's the pacing that kills me it's like it's like reading a book and then you have to stop and like walk for a mile and then you can read the next bit what's the point in that that's just a frustrating book but yeah 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 i don't know it, it, it's an interesting like i'm much more interested in in it from a theatrical side and being like a real life interactive thing where you really engage with with people and and a place i don't get that same engagement with with that the same kind of setup essentially but in a video game world like i don't that's not yeah. what that's not what I go to games for. That's not what I, I would, go to I would games. Di- I would dispute the idea that what you want isn't story. I think that you're interested in a freer kind of play from which the the story is an interplay between game and you and other player or like the I want my story basically. I want yeah. my story of me playing that game. Yeah, which is which is like a a different kind of thing and I I think that um I don't know so so much of I like I like Kentucky Route Zero particularly because it doesn't film it doesn't feel filmic in the way that it tries to tell you a story. Yeah. And there are some incredibly good writers from film which have come to games and written very good um, stories and dialogue and understand interaction design and all that. But I, I, like games consistent, um, particularly at a, a increasingly AAA level, a lot of what they talk about in terms of immersion and experiences is, is sort of aiming at making you feel like you're playing a film. Um, and the storytelling is quite similar and or, or perhaps even like a you know a Netflix series because the long runs are quite long um. uh, that's the thing that gets me more I think it's maybe an age thing as well it's it's the length of time like I, I even TV series now I'm starting to be like just, just give me a film like let me watch a film like I remember when I was in when I, I did English at university and one of my lecturers would uh, always talk about how much he hated novels and how how much of a waste of time. He's like, give me a poem. You can do it in a poem. 
Don't yeah. make me sit for like a week and read a book. Like just do, do me do a poem, like do me a play, give yeah. me an hour and a half on the stage. That's fine. You don't need these thick tomes that we have. These to days, if to. I see performance that's longer than like ninety minutes, I'm like, what are you doing with my life? Oh no, it's totally. <laughs> that is that is a waste of time. You know? Especially for you, you know, you need to get back to training and stuff. Yeah, man, like put it into a, an audiobook or a podcast, and then I can do it while I cycle. Exactly. Uh, Hannah, I think we've covered all sorts of interesting stuff. Is there anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to, to mention? Um, or you can just let people know where they can find your stuff and all that. Um, I'm just, my my poorly updated um, website is Um You can you can read my PhD. I don't think anyone apart from my, my mum and my, like, the people assessing it. I've never read it, though, so I wouldn't do that if I were you. Um... Well, I, I mean, I'm working, you should check out uh, For Eyes to Sleep. It's I'd not necessarily got a release date yet, but it will eventually. Uh, that's the next project from Ed Key in uh, collaboration with Nikolai Trusinski. Um I'm working on Metacione, which is doesn't have an official release date, but um, is definitely coming out. Um, and sort of, I'm working on that with a super great team with uh, at uh, Die Gute Fabrik. Um and I oh I've got a book uh, a zine that I'm publishing that is arriving in the next couple of days which I did a a, a series of articles on the Klondike Collective and uh, sort of looking at one collective and asking us ourselves like why why do we make the kinds of games that we make why do we make them in collectives how are collectives a particular response to our socioeconomic um, environment as a industry that's super interesting um and that's called uh hannah and the klondikes and that'll be on hannahnicklin.com forward slash shop a first run of like only 125 so you know i'll put it on pdf as well so people can download a digital version of it um oh i do have a patreon except that um uh, i'm I've, i might stop having a patreon <laughs> Um, in that it's it's got some really beautiful like good supporters on it, and I do a zine a year basically, collect my yeah. writings, and that supports that. Um, and I, I really appreciate that support. But um, I started it when I had less work in games writing, and now I have more work in games writing, and I'm doing less um, kind of critical article based writing. So there's less for me to publish, and I, yeah. I'm I, I'm not I don't know I might leave it open as a tips jar. Um, if like another 50 people sign up after listening to Checkpoints, then I'll keep it open and just be clear that it's a tips jar for a while. I've um, not even got 50 people on my own Patreon, so I can't guarantee that, Hannah, but maybe uh, they'll find you much more interesting. <laughs> kind of. I'm thinking of, have you played a game called Crebbage with Grandpas? No, but I, I, I have heard about this. Uh, I, it's I can't remember incredible. when I heard talking to it. It's like the best game that came out last year. It's honestly one of my games of the year. It's just perfect piece of design. What it allows you to do when you design a grandpa and um, just the little touches when you play cribbage with your grandpa that you've designed. It's and it's been... all artificial, right? So you, it is literally cribbage with grandpas, but you kind of set the you, grandpas yes. at the start of the game. You're not playing with a grandpa sat in a call centre somewhere. You are playing with a grandpa whose character you created. Although and that's quite a nice idea, just just as, a, as an aside, <laughs> to like set them up in like a retirement home somewhere. I mean, yeah, literally if you're in a retirement home, it is. If you're playing like cribbage with sad grandpas in a farm on Ch- in China who just have to live in bunk beds and 
Like, oh, you went fun. straight to a dark place there. I was imagining just some cheery guy, like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, you Get have to, to play a bit of cribbage. The things that the depths of capitalism will do with something to the worse before you decide that you should make it for the better, I feel. I, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you do play with a grandpa which you design yourself. And I happily went about designing grandpas, never considering once that I would make my own grandpas because I, I never had a good, I don't, I never met one of my grandpas and the other one, um, I, I I never knew properly and then the last one was like a complete like asshole basically um and incredibly abusive man that it was it was good that I didn't have a particularly good relationship with um so I just make up of some grandpa and then I give it to my friend and I say look play this and they set about making their own grandpa and it suddenly occurred to me that you would do this and I decided to um well I haven't I may not find the time for it but I'd quite like to make a zine where I talk to people about their grandpas and make their grandpa in cribbage with grandpas and that's a on good one, idea one page of the zine it's a nice little picture of that grandpa and then on the other side of the zine it's like a description of that conversation about their grandpa and the things they told me about them i like that idea i need to check that out if i have a lot of money i might make it into a deck of cards so you would get on one side the grandpa and the other side the story that's even nicer and stuff but then i would need 52 grandpas i don't know if i can have a conversation a week for a year about people's grandpas just get double double thick cards yeah that's a good point um that, that was that was really good fun hannah i really enjoyed chatting i hope uh, i hope the technical issues didn't bug you too much oh no it's fine i hope i hope that you you, you very um you patiently withstood my constant challenging of the premise of every question. So I no, that's good you. though. I'm, 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 I, I enjoy that kind of uh, that kind of chat. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's engaging. You know, I think that kind of combative uh, nature. Of, the combative is maybe the wrong word, but like I think that makes for the most engaging discussions. Like yeah. I think it's super okay. interesting. I hope so. I hope you also enjoy editing me. <laughs> <laughs> I may not edit that much. We're gonna drive one screaming